Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. I just want to remind you that uh, we're brought to you today by Abe's Muffins. Abe's Muffins are the real deal, my friends, and you can get them in a lot of great places. Just look up Abe's, Abe's Muffins uh, online. Uh, see if they're sold near you. If not, demand them, and I'll tell you why. Because too many times you buy things that say they're good for you and they taste great, and you get them home and you're like, well, this was disappointing. I just spent a lot of money on something that I'm forcing myself to eat. Oh, and that's not me. Abe's Muffins. I gotta tell you, Abe's Muffins, first of all, blueberry, lemon poppy seed, chocolate chip. Did I mention they have coffee cakes? Did I mention they have brownies? Forget about it, my friends. They're outrageously good tasting. And also gluten-free, allergen-free. You know, you got that kid who can't eat what everybody else is eating and it's frustrating and you're sad and why does it have to be this way? Be sad no longer, my friend. You can have your kids eat Abe's muffins. God knows I do. On that note, we're gonna absolutely transition to today's guest. Uh, Aaron Catherine Betog, who I've known for many years, is a brilliant writer, uh, but because she's a woman, she had some problems getting diagnosed with, uh, I think this is a big problem for a lot of women, doctors and women are not communicating uh, as well as they should. I'll let other people talk about that, but this is not the only person I've talked to who has this kind of issue. But Erin got diagnosed with MS and has completely changed the course of her life. She has a literary magazine that she's going to be talking about. Uh, she's doing some uh, brilliant educating of herself, uh, including getting a new degree. She's a fascinating woman. I've uh, been friends with her, like I said, for a long time. We've been in each other's corner over many years, and I think she is exactly the right person to talk about the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act and so many more interesting side legal issues. So uh, please join me in welcoming the lovely uh, and brilliant Erin Catherine Baytog. I'm here, gratefully and happily, with Erin Catherine Baytog. Uh, who I met first by the name of Sparrow a long time ago. And I'm just really excited that you could be on uh, my podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. Yeah, it's, uh, we certainly did meet a long time ago <laughs> in a city far, far away. <laughs> it was, in fact. Even though we lived like 20 minutes from each other. <laughs> right. So uh, uh, when we met, we were both living outside of Boston, you a little yeah. further outside than me, but mm -hmm. we met in Chicago at, of all places, a romance writers conference. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember <laughs> one of the best things that happened to me was I met you. One of the things I'm still bummed about was I think it's the last time I've been to Chicago and I never left the conference hotel. Yes, same, yep. And so I still have a craving for deep dish pizza that has not been resolved for a very long time. I don't even want to know how long it was. Could be a decade or more, I don't know. But next time I go to Chicago, 
getting the deep dish. But you and I met because you were and are a writer at heart. You're well, you're a creative person, and yeah. I mean, you have been a writer, uh, both fiction, poetry, and music, also, correct? Yes. Yep. Can you, correct. So why don't you hit me with some background? You, you grew up in the Worcester, Massachusetts area? So I actually, I grew up um, kind of south of there for people who, some maybe, are um, at least familiar with the NFL. I grew up close to, in a town that is about 15 minutes from uh, Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. Um, so southern um, Massachusetts and um, pretty much, I mean, just suburbia. Um, a typical sort of Southern Mass town, um, like 97% Caucasian. And uh, you, you were either Italian Roman Catholic or Irish Roman Catholic. Um, you were I the latter. The latter. <laughs> yep, exactly. Aaron Catherine, <laughs> you guessed it. Um, and yeah. you were, you, well, I'm not outing you. You're, you're out, you're married. Um, yes. So you're, I don't know what the preferred term is. That's how incredibly old, white, not cool I am. Cause I want to say you're queer or you're lesbian or you're gay. How, do, how would yeah, you identify? Yeah, I identify as lesbian. Um, she, her, hers. Um, yeah, the, the town, and I'll go on a slight um, diversion here. Mm -hmm. The town is, so I have um, nieces and nephews and um, when I, was in high school i was not out at all um and actually it's kind of interesting because i'm probably one of maybe 10 or 11 in my graduating class who are on the lgbtq um, ia plus spectrum um so there was a whole group of us who were all closeted <laughs> Um, you didn't have like a gay student alliance? So thing? when I was a senior in high school, um, a gay straight alliance did um, form in our school. I was not a part of it. I mean, I was, I, was, I was just closeted and afraid and all of that, even though in my family, um, my aunt, who has since passed, um, but she was a lesbian and she was essentially married. I mean, it wasn't legal at that time, but she had been with my other aunt. I mean, by the time she passed away, they'd been together for over 30 years. Um, and, they, wow. and they had a child together and everything. So, and it was never an issue, um, you know, and they were never, it was never like hidden from me when I, is what I mean. I mean, they had right. a very difficult time, um, you know, and, but, not within my immediate family, you know, um, so. They face yeah. challenges like with the outer community, like maybe church or business, yeah. something like that? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, my, my aunt had challenges with her parents initially um, because this was, you know, I think she came out in like the 80s. Um, so, but in any event, now it's a long divergent. <laughs> yeah, like, but yeah. the 80s doesn't, I just want to say, because I'm 58, the 80s doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah, but it really is. So along those lines, um, my, uh, you know, um, my niece um, and nephew um, and a bunch of their friends, they're all like out and open and exploring and very, um, you know, and, and it's not impacting their sort of 
they're, they're not bullied and, um, you know, they, they haven't encountered like pushback on that. I have it's cousins. just not a big deal. It's, yeah, it's exactly it's, what you had hoped for. Exactly. Yeah. It, it really, you know, kind of, I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> like I, I, it's, um, it gives you hope. I mean, really just, um, seeing the younger generation, like they'll, they all have social media now. Um, and you know, they had phones, like I was the first person in my high school to have a cell phone. And, but, and at that point you had to pay for like every single minute. Oh yeah. They were not cheap. You know? I was no. a lawyer by then probably. Yeah. And I, and it was expensive, but I was like, it's cool. I'm a lawyer. I can do this. And right. it wasn't really necessary, but I wanted it. I don't know what it's like when you're in high school. It's probably the same thing. It's not really necessary, but you want it. Right. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think it, it probably is necessary just mm. how, how ingrained it is in, in everyone's lives. Um, oh yeah. I couldn't so, live without my cell phone. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's basically an extension of your, of your hand or your arm. Well, the truth um, is I, um, once a year, I go to Costa Rica to an event where I shut off my cell phone when I get there. And for either one week or two weeks, I literally don't use it. Um, I do survive, but the first couple of days, I'm not kidding. I do go through withdrawal. Yeah. What and that's the thing. I mean, they've done studies. That's like, that is a legitimate, like psychological addiction type of issue. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So. But I want to talk about your creativity. Too. Yes. So you, that's so what you, I was going to get back to. So, cool. um, so create creatively. Yeah. I, um, I've always been creative. I, I guess um, that has sort of been writing is really just sort of a part of me. Um, you know, I, I taught myself how to write probably um, before I could, I mean, really before I could read um, for the most part. Um, how do you do really that? Young. Uh, well, I mean, I could read, but not like, I, I was really young. Um, mm -hmm. I was writing stories at like four. Um, and I just always, that was always the way that I communicated the best. Um, and plus my mind was like a tornado. So I needed a way to get all of that out. I um, can relate to that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've always been, um, writing has always been a passion of mine. I, um, I did, I was, uh, worked in corporate sales when I was 16. Um, that is an, a whole other story that really isn't relevant. Um, but when I was going to college, my undergrad, I didn't want to study business because I thought it was boring. So I just created my own major, which is basically a combination of creative writing and psychology, which were two things that really interested me. Um, so I just basically for four years, I wrote like poetry and plays and essays and fiction, wrote a couple of books, like things like that. I mean, I just really sort of immerse myself in the, the craft of writing and, um, and language and humanities. But I also was really interested in science. Um, so I, I did minor in physics and poli-sci. Um, those things interested me. Um, well, I think that one of the things that makes you interesting is you're interested. Like I would say that I'd be shocked if you ever told me you were bored. <laughs> And, yeah. and the people that I have on this podcast are the kind of people that, like myself, have a lot of different interests and they're curious 
and they do the research, like someone will introduce them to a topic and if they're not into it, it's done, it's dead to them. But if they're into it, they take out every book on the shelf yeah. or they, they Google it into the wee hours. And, you know, if you're like me and I know you're into music, you probably looked at every album you really liked and tried to figure out what does the producer do? Why is this name showing up on all the albums I like? It's, I don't know if that was one of your things, but. Yeah, so abso yeah absolutely. The, um, yeah, I mean, I remember looking at the, so this is obviously, we're, we, we can both date each other. I'm, I'm dating myself here, but looking at jackets of cassettes and like, I remember getting um, Boys for Pele and like a Tor Tori Amos and just like opening the jacket and you know, going to the acknowledgements and looking up, you know, trying to find, figure out who, who are these people, you know, and then also I would take the lyrics because of that, you know, the jackets always included the lyrics. And so yeah. I read, read her, her lyrics like poetry because it really was, I mean, she's prolific. I mean, Tori, um, for Tori Amos, that's yeah. not a big leap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, so I would just kind of like really, read her the lyrics like poetry and and try and kind of um ingest and interpret and you know kind of perceive and analyze and all of that and um I yeah I felt a, a real connection really with with lyrics I mean words in general are kind of my uh my go-to um, yeah we have that in common I think and you're yeah. a musician you're a musician too, right? I am. Yeah. Yep. I played the drums since I was five. Um, I actually was learning piano um, to play a song at my wedding, which is not happening. I did get married like officially, um, but just not the big sort of wedding ceremony. But that's because of COVID. Planning. Because right. of COVID. Yep. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah. So I was learning piano to play a song um at the wedding and um yeah but i i play cello and flute and um that type of stuff yeah i love instruments and music and and those sort of expressions um and growing up my family was pretty musical i mean my my brother um played he went to berkeley um he plays he could pick up an instrument and just start playing it without have ever touched it before um and just so the listeners understand you're talking about berkeley music school in boston yes, excuse me yes not berkeley <laughs> university in california Correct. which is where my wife went for her own oh, all right there you mm -hmm. go um so yes i i love music um i love science and um like art humanities all of that. I, I am not, my wife is a cartoonist. She's, she's really great with drawing and she's very creative. Um, I have not seen any of her work. Has she posted uh, it on Facebook? She and has, missed it? Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to um, follow her on Instagram. She posts her cartoons. Oh, that's what I need to do when we're done yeah. here. Oh, do you mind sharing with everybody what her Instagram handle is? Uh, no. Okay. Um, sure. I, it's uh, Caroline Kind Mind. Caroline, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, kind, K-I-N-D, mind, M-I-N-D. Oh, I'm going to check that out, and I'm sure yeah. lots of listeners will too. I was thinking about how have my experiences and the law intersected, and just as you said, I mean, when I'm interested in a topic, then I just start to dive, do a very intense deep dive and so i was realizing all of the different ways that my 
experience has intersected with the law and been so um, profoundly impacted. Um, and in, in the, some of the things that come top of that came top of mind, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, so I have multiple sclerosis, I am disabled. Um, I do use um, walking aids, mobility aids. Um, and so this act, this law that was put into place in 1990. Um, so By the way, let's wrap our heads around the fact that before 1990, there was no Americans with Disabilities Act. That's right. And well, I, I interrupted you just because, you know, for people who think that, you know, we're past certain uh, barriers in life, you know, the fact that like, we finally trans and gay people can't be discriminated in the workplace, against in the workplace, you know, the Supreme Court decided that very, very recently. Um, gay marriage decided very, very recently. ADA, you know, in the 90s. It's like, we got a lot of work to do yeah. and uh, resting on our laurels is just not an option. But anyway, sorry. No, absolutely. And, and the thing is, is that, um, so it's, I'll, I'll sort of backtrack a little bit um, with what you were just saying. So I actually recently watched a documentary. Um, my wife and I watched a documentary called Crip Camp. And it is about uh, it's, it was produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. It's on Netflix. It's about an hour and 48 minutes. And it does detail um, from 1971, 72, all the way to 1990, um, the experiences of the disabled community in, in this country and sort of how the fight for disability rights um, you know, started. And one of the people that is highlighted is a woman named Judy Human, who really is kind of recognized as the international leader in the disability community. She is a lifelong civil rights advocate for people with disabilities. Um, and that includes, you know, vulnerable and marginalized people, um, including, you know, people of color and um, LGBTQ people um and so glad so you I, reminded me of this because i heard on a different podcast that i listened to they interviewed her about the film and i i i, I want to hear more but what i thought was striking was how how she discussed it and the kind of things that are in the film about people dating and doing yeah. things and and there were the people uh around the disabled people made assumptions about them that really, well, frankly, revealed their prejudices. I mean, we all have prejudices, but their assumptions yep. about these people revealed their prejudices. And Judy, Ms. Human, and, and other people really help to help us to see people as being people, not Absolutely. their handicaps or their disabilities or whatever. Anyway. Yeah, no, you're absolutely that. right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, so it starts, and, and not to give too much away, but it, it starts off with a, a camp that was opened in 1952 uh, for, um, at that point, there were handicapped people, people with disabilities. Um, and they're, they do interview and have highlights from, there's a couple 
which is uh, a man and a woman who both have cerebral palsy and they're married and they have a child and um, there's and they're they interview people with other disabilities, um, including, um, you know, not just uh, disabilities that are, are focused on mobility, um, but also um, mental disabilities, um, intellectual disabilities, things like that. And, and, you know, these people get master's degrees, they work in, you know, sort of very, um, they they're they're like just like you said they're human beings they're people they have full lives and they're yeah i think what you're referring to there's there's a woman who has an affair and she gets a, a sexually transmitted infection and the doctor <laughs> um sends her for this really sort of um unnecessary test for something else because he couldn't believe that she a disabled person would trans you know would get an sti because she was disabled how is she going to have a sexual life um you know so there are those assumptions that that people make um and so and, you know yeah. i've been educated because a couple of reasons my wife works um in education but specifically involving special needs education and so since we've been together over the years i've marched in the disability pride parade every year and have gotten to meet a wide variety of people who are disabled or who interact with disabled people of every stripe and then of course you and i went to pride parades just plain old lgbtq pride parades many times um and i think that uh just the world is so much broader and people are so much more interesting than we give each other credit for <laughs> you know yeah. um, yes which i think is why it's important to have artists in the world because i think artists are constantly uh, i'll speak for you and me we're constantly looking for a new way to look at the world or a way to unpeel the onion to see something different and interesting uh anyway that's my take so yeah, i uh, i I, uh, just to, to kind of piggyback off what you're saying, I mean, I'm, I, I would say curiosity is a, a tenant of my personality and, and sort of my drive. Creativity is, is a way or an avenue for me to explore that. And I think that um, my, one of the, I just want to understand um, that sort of good luck <laughs> kind of exactly it's like which is why the the you know the onion has so many layers and I feel like my wife at times is is um, thinking to herself she's married to the Riddler because I just asked so many questions about everything um, but I think you know, she knows what she got herself into she, she does at this point I would think I, yeah. I think she's pretty happy yeah. every picture I see she looks pretty darn happy about her, her <laughs> oh, conundrum that's great. yes yeah we're we we're a good compliment for one I, I want to direct you a little bit sorry but I want no, to get the with the ADA so like when you and I first met I had no idea and I think you had not been uh, diagnosed as having multiple sclerosis and uh you know, we lived our lives as friends and we had, we'd come together and talk about our various disastrous relationships mm -hmm. and, and reassure each other that, you know, we should get back in the game or do whatever it is we were doing in various parts of our lives. And uh, that was really great. Uh, but 
at some point you did get diagnosed with MS and you were saying, you know, with the American uh, Disabilities Act, you brushed up against that. And I'd love to know what your experience was and like what's good about it, what needs to be improved, if anything, like in your personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I guess just for background purposes for um, two things for people who, who don't know. So just quickly, multiple sclerosis is a degenerative um, autoimmune disease that um, basically the wiring in your brain and spine have uh, kind of a covering around the nerves. It's like an electrical wire with, um, with a protective covering. And the immune system or my immune system thinks that that protective covering is um, sort of foreign born. It's, it's not supposed to be in my body. So it attacks it. And then those attacks end up leaving scars. And so my wires don't fire properly. And that is why I have issues with um, you know, cognitive functioning and focus, with retention, um, with walking, and the ability to sort of um, even use my hands or different things like that. Um, it pre pre presents differently in different people, um, but that's just a little background. And the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA became law in 1990. And really it's a civil rights law that protects discrimination um, against people with disabilities in all areas of public life, it's supposed to, with jobs, with schools, transportation, public and private spaces um, that are open to the general public, so like parks um, or you know any sort of buildings, um, apartment buildings, things like that. It just um, occurred to me that you know you've always driven. Can you yeah. still drive? So I can. There are days where I can't. Um, yeah, I uh, thankfully I can. There, if I have relapses, usually I can't. There was a good one or two months um, a few years ago where I wasn't able to drive. But you um, live in the suburbs, so like uh, just I do as now, a moment. Yeah. So because I see this all the time, I live in Brooklyn and my office is in Manhattan, and I see people with various disabilities in my life every day. Um, you know, subway stations have for the most part elevators or escalators. There's ramps everywhere in New York City. But, you know, I'm a child of the suburbs too. I'm on Long Island and long before the ADA. So there were no ramps at the curb. Um, you being out in the burbs even today, if you can't drive, what, you know, do you bump up against the fact, oh, I see what's available to me and what's not available to me. Like, has that happened? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was living in, um, so I was living in the city when I had a relapse and I couldn't drive. Just so um, we're clear, the city is Boston. Because when New Yorkers yes. listen to this, they right, think they the think, city is New York. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Uh, yes, that's right. Sorry. Yes, the city of Boston, which is a city, New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny, but please. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're from, Eric. Um, no. uh, well, ooh. actually, that's not really where you're from originally. Yeah, but I know. Um, that's okay. Yes. So in any event, um, when I was living in the city of Boston and I couldn't drive, um, I also couldn't walk at that point, really. Um, not, I, so, I, so public transportation was actually even out at that point for me. Um, so my brother had to move in with me um, so he could drive me to work. 
um, and other places and do errands for me at that, at that point, like groceries and do my laundry because I couldn't walk down the stairs in my apartment to do it, things like that. Um, so with, it's, it's very challenging and being in the city or, or being in the suburbs now, there, there is no public transportation. Um, and so I, I, and the apartment building that we live in right now, we are on the first floor. The building does not have elevators. So if we were not able to get a first floor apartment, we would not be able to live in this apartment building. Right. Um, and there are definitely, and this is a, a new apartment building. We were the first people to move into this apartment. Um, they wow. just finished the building. So there, there are still definitely challenges um, that people, um, with disabilities face um even now it's like they're they're building a building and it's brand new but it does not have elevators so it is not accessible how many floors um, are in that building uh it's it's three floors but it is um it's two flights of stairs for for each floor and it's about 12 or 13 steps per flight of stairs hey i was never disabled in the same way but at one point I injured my back and leg when I was performing off Broadway and I literally could barely move. And I remember going down subway steps in agony and it taking a very long time. I'm not comparing my experience in any way other than all of a sudden when you're confronted with this sort of thing, you see how important it is to have certain areas of accessibility. And I'm sure, I just want people to understand that just because they're able-bodied, if that's the right term, or they're not facing yep. this now, it doesn't mean it's not important. And their fellow citizens, people of value, if they want to take care of them, they should have an awareness about this. So that's yeah, really the absolutely. reason I'm bringing it up. Well, and it's kind of interesting too, because so they're actually, it's, it's sort of one of those things where, um, you know, I think I think a lot of people when when marriage equality was made law, were thinking, all right, it's over. You know, good good for you guys. Like you you now your fight is done, and it's <laughs> it's not. I mean, very much as evidenced by um, you know by by the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that just was passed by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, or thinking about you know, Minton versus Dignity Health, right, which is essentially a trans man was scheduled for a hysterectomy and the hospital or, you know, the, the hospital conglomerate Dignity Health um, is run by the Catholic Church. And once they found out that, um, you know, Mr. Minton is a, a trans male, they immediately canceled the hysterectomy under you know religious freedom claims and so now that it has been brought um you know mr minton sued dignity health and is now um you know it's, it's a case i think that might be going before the supreme court at least in california um yeah this is a long this whole trans thing for from my point of view is like this is just the next level of at, there's a whole hierarchy of who our culture gets to beat up on, it seems. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it seems like uh, 
for a lot of trans people, they feel like the forgotten part of the LGBTQ movement, or, you know, there's plenty of bi people who might argue it's them, and I don't want to get lost in that conversation. But the, the yeah. point is, right now, suddenly the focus seems to be on trans people for, for a very good reason. There's lots of, first of all, Black trans women are being murdered at a ridiculous yes. rate in this country. Yeah. Um, there's also this complete misunderstanding, whether it's truly misunderstanding or just an opportunity to bully people, where people think that trans women or trans men are using the bathroom of their choice is somehow part of creating uh, something diabolical. I know personally a trans woman who is, uh, I don't wanna get into this because this could be offensive perhaps, but let's just say this trans woman is extremely attractive and to have her go to the men's room would be far more problematic than have her go to the women's room because she's a trans woman. And it is a ridiculous idea uh, to do that. And I just, you know, this kind of thing is happening right now. Um, it's good to have these cases come out in the open. It's when I'm proud of our legal system uh, because, you know, people's uh, bigotry gets exposed. But it's also sad because people's bigotry gets exposed and we all see that um, we're sad. I'll speak for myself. I'm saddened and disappointed by how hard people are fighting against what I consider dignity. And I don't understand it. But then again, I don't understand how people voted for the current president. I can't say anything. But, you know, they, they, it wasn't just a few people. You know, I don't want to get lost in, you know, what the percentages or whatever. Yeah. More than five people voted for him. That's a problem for me. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And there's still, there's still plenty of people who don't understand why I find that problematic. Uh, all right. But this isn't about me, Erin, as shocking as that may seem <laughs> uh, to some who know me. Um, yeah. But I, I love that you, you know, here you are, uh, lesbian, you're dealing with MS, but you are absolutely empathetic to trans brothers and sisters. And I think that's part of what it's all about, ultimately, isn't it? It's empathy. It's yes. a heart. Um, and it's nice when the law comes up with empathy as opposed to in opposition to empathy. Um, are you finding that to be the case, like with the ADA and with your legal experiences? Or is yeah, I mean, challenging? I think it's so, yeah, along, along those lines, I mean, the, the reason why I brought up the fight isn't over is because the fight isn't over for equality. The fight isn't over for the ADA. I mean, even as recently as 2017, um, you know, the, the GOP <laughs> um, introduced a bill called the ADA Education and Reform Act. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's a great bill. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so really, it's the GOP. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, basically, it it really would have essentially, shockingly, right, set back the um, disability rights for disabled citizens in this country back to the 50s, which is where apparently the GOP and the Trump administration wants to send our entire country. Um, 
it's because really, of money. It's money over people, right? Yeah, because the yes. ADA costs some businesses a little more money because it costs money to put a ramp in, just as a like overly general example, yeah. or to create other safeguards to make things safe or accessible for people covered under the ADA. But the, the, the bigger problem I see when I said empathy, and I know you have some science in your background, I feel like these people have a gene that prevents their empathy synapses from firing. And it only, the only time that people in the GOP get concerned about a social issue is when it impacts them personally. My two thoughts I have are when the Brady Bill happened, it's because Mr. Brady got shot in the head while he was standing next to Ronald Reagan. And yep. suddenly, some people who cared about him thought that everybody getting easy access to guns was a bad idea. Right, but it only they only took action when it affected them personally. Also, Nancy Reagan, when her husband got Alzheimer's, suddenly she was interested in the research that other people opposed because it affected her personally. And what I admire about you, Erin, and other people who I admire is that you can see past your own interests. And while you have very important interests, you're, you do not stop within yourself. You look at how other people are affected. And if I can gush about you for a moment, and for the people who I think listen to this podcast and care the way I do, that's what excites me. That's what gives me hope in a time when hope is a very expensive commodity, it seems. But I really dig that you look beyond your own self-interest and care about other people. I know it comes through in your art and it comes through in who you are as a person. And uh, I don't have anything more to say about that. It's probably one of the reasons we're friends. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, we're one, maybe it's from my upbringing or, um, you know, it's probably a combination like, like most things, um, nature and nurture. Um, my one of the one of the things that I remember my mother always saying is you're not the only person on God's green earth and so that was very much instilled in me in a, in a young age was um, consideration for others and I think empathy um, you know I, I suppose I would characterize myself as an empath um, and that probably is one of the things that led me into um, my sort of new vocation and, and what I'm pursuing now, um, which is healthcare justice and narrative medicine. I'm perfect um, segue because unfortunately I have limited time. So I want to hear about what you're doing now. So what is what you just said it, but yeah, narr oh. so narrative medicine um, is sort of how I'm entering into um, work in healthcare justice. So narrative medicine right now, I'm studying through Columbia University and essentially um, it, it really is a way for um, health professionals, writers, scholars to tap into their own empathy and use that in their interactions with the people that they care for. Um, and so it's really about training um, health professionals um, in using the skills and the values of narrative understanding to kind of improve the outcomes for um, patients and themselves as caregivers. 
Um, and it really is about using the skills of radical listening and creativity, taking those things from the humanities and arts um, to, and using those to address the needs of, of all of those who seek and deliver healthcare. So those who seek healthcare is really everyone <laughs> at some point in your life. Sure. Um, and, um, you know, those who deliver healthcare, I mean, they are human beings as well. And they don't, the majority of, of care providers or physicians don't enter into the health field to, um, they enter it because they feel a calling and they want to help to heal people and to, um, you know, provide treatment. And it, un unfortunately, um, I'm actually reading a book, book called American Sickness, and it's really about how the healthcare system became a business and um, the ways that physicians and others are trying to fight against that and get back to sort of the core of medicine, which is healing. It's very um, interesting you bring that up because, um, first of all, we've seen more now than ever because of COVID the impact that this disease has had on caregivers and yes. the fact that we as a society and specifically a particular political party and administration have not taken care of the people who take care of the rest of us. That's number one. And number two, um, how, as you said, it's becoming a business, healthcare has uh, fallen way short of its promise. Uh, when, uh, as you and I talked before, and friends all over Europe and all over the world who do not worry about getting sick any more than just because they get sick, but they're not afraid to go seek treatment uh, because it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg. And if they don't go to work for a day or two, they know they're covered. The whole culture that they live in has a completely different way of looking at people and healthcare and the general welfare than ours does. And I think that the healthcare issues you're talking about are not in a vacuum. They're problematic, but they're part, forgive the terrible pun, they're a symptom of a bigger health and cultural problem. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I most definitely agree, yes. And um, well, that's I all think... I needed. Then thanks. I feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah, no. And the more you know, the more that I learn, um, the more and this this sort of you know healthcare justice bleeds into racial injustice. Um, oh, no question. Because I we're mean, seeing under under serviced communities invariably are filled with people of color marginalized people. I mean, as an attorney who part of what I do, I represent criminal clients. I mean, I go into prisons. It's not chock full of white people and it's not chock full of middle-class people. I mean, it's not an accident how things happen. Sorry, I jumped on what you were saying. No, no, you're, but you, you again, bring up a really valid and important point. Um, and it's, I mean, I can kind of go on a, go on another tangent here. Um, but really, you know, access, 
to a healthcare system um, really are, are social determinants of, of health and, and health inequities. Um, and they're influenced by, you know, sort of things that you were talking about, the dis disparate distribution of resources and wealth and power. I mean, just in the United States, um, you know, even, even when we're seeing with, with COVID, I mean, the, the rates of, of disease and death are higher in people of color, um, disproportionately so. Right, and it's, um, and it's all interrelated to things like where do they live? They're packed into smaller spaces. They live in what's called food deserts where they don't have access to better nutrition. Um, they don't have education about better nutrition. Um, it's, you know, it's not one factor, but it's a, it's a series of factors over time that lead up to uh, cataclysmic events, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that like the World Health Organization, to your point, um, you know, I, they, they determine that geographic locale, ethnicity, education, environmental stress, access to healthcare systems in general, access to, you know, to food, healthy food, to all of those things. Those are like, like I was saying, I mean, and just as you're talking about the social determinants of health and health inequities, and I mean, in the United States, it's not just infectious disease like COVID. Um, even, you know, rates of diabetes are higher among African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans. Um, you know, African American women are more likely to be diagnosed with advanced stage breast cancer compared to white women and have higher rates of mortality, um, including, you know, they, they have higher rates of, of mortality and infant mortality as well. Um, I do want to add one thing that I didn't even realize until a lot of what I have learned through Black Lives Matter movement, which is that when you live every day in a state of fear and anxiety because you walk on the street and you're more likely to get pulled over for no reason because you're African-American or whatever, that takes a toll on your overall well-being. Yeah. I, and so it is literally more stressful to be a person of color in this country. And if I went further, um, when we talk about uh, the, the fight isn't over, you know, as a, a gay woman, you, you want to walk anywhere with your wife and hold hands. But I don't know how much at, um, awareness you have of the fact that there's, there's places where you might go together where you're like, I'm not holding her hand in public. Okay. I don't know if that's a thing for you, but as a, as a man who, if I were, you know, I'm happily married to my wife, but if I were dating a man, there's places where I definitely wouldn't hold another man's hand in the street. And I'm 6'3", and I'm not, you know, I, I, you know, someone would be up for a real confrontation with me, but there's a lot of people who would be up for that confrontation, you know? Yeah. It's like, I, who wants to start that? And... I never worry about holding my wife's hand in public anywhere, anywhere in the world. So those are, I don't know how to wrap this up in a bow at the end of this conversation, except to say I'm so happy that I have, that we have someone like you who is empathetic, artistic, and you get the diagnosis you get. And rather than bitch and moan, you've, made a turn in your life to do something that I think is so admirable 
and frankly, so interesting. Was that, I mean, did, when you got the diagnosis, is that when you made the turn to go, I'm going to study this? I'm going to, like, how did that happen? Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I, um, and it took 16 years for a diagnosis. Um, and, and part of the reason is because I'm a woman um, and I was young. Um, and so those, those two things, I mean, one being a woman and, and, um, you know, and seeing male doctors, um, there, there is a real judgment around, I don't know my own body and I am not, um, I do not have the information and education and autonomy to make the decisions that are right for me for my own body and the things that I'm expressing that I'm feeling are wrong, like I can't feel my left leg, um, that is dismissed. Well, it's just a lady problem. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're interpreting it wrong or you're not, it's not, it's just this or it's just that, you know, it's just a pinched nerve. Well, I, you know, I've heard no, this I, a lot from lots of my women friends. Sorry that I'm no, not mansplaining, God forbid, but <laughs> I know that I have women friends in real life and in Twitter world who talk about, they know they have endometriosis and they go from various doctors who are like, no, I don't think that's your problem. It's this, it's like, they can't get someone to really hear them and give them the appropriate treatment until years later. And it's like, duh. And suddenly they get the right treatment. It's the right medication. I mean, was that your experience, right? Is that what you're... Yeah, it took 16 years, um, misdiagnosis, um, medication, sort of, um, you know, misprescribed medications, two of which almost killed me. I was hospitalized for really Jesus. severe side effects, um, where, I mean, one of which was uh, my, my, every muscle in my body was spasming, and my, my lungs were collapsing. Um, Jesus. And yeah, um, so it's when i was diagnosed um it was essentially i was sitting in a neuro oncologist's office and he was like we're 80 85 percent sure this is ms and not a brain tumor but it could be so let's do a spinal tap just to make sure mm -hmm. um and so I, you know, I had two spinal taps and that was the, the final sort of diagnosis. And, and it was actually a relief in some ways to finally have an answer of this is this, I knew something was wrong with me going all the way back to when I was 19 and getting double vision. Um, right. You know, and now I finally have an answer. Um, and then it was sort of business as usual. Um, you know, it was kind of like, you will give you a couple of pills and um, you'll maybe need to use a cane in your 60s versus your 80s, um, you know, uh, but things, things will be fine. And they weren't. I mean, my disease got worse um, and my mobility and my cognitive abilities, all of these things were impacted to the point where it became untenable for me to do the job that I had been doing for 20 years. Um, and then I needed to find a new path forward. And that is where narrative medicine came in. And it was really through my wife where I was able to, um, you know, kind of move into this new path and really start to explore what it could be. Um, because she gave me, um, 
you know, kind of the support and encouragement to pursue something different because I never thought that I would do anything other than corporate sales, even though my passion and my interests were very much elsewhere. Can I just say for our listeners, a good wife is an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely. Find yourself a good woman or really, a good man. I, you know, it, I mean, it, yeah, you know, I, uh, a partner. You really yeah, want to but I, is right. what it is. I wouldn't yeah. be doing this podcast without Holly because one day she just turned to me and said, you really should do a podcast. And I, and I said to her, the day I do it, everyone's going to say podcasts are over. Like I'm so late <laughs> to the game and I don't have anything to add and blah, blah, blah. And she just convinced me. And I, as a result, I've been having, if nobody else is listening, I'm having fantastic conversations and joining them. Um, but also, you know, uh, my wife, Holly, and someday I'm going to have her on, had her own issues. No, she got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it's benign and she's surviving it like a chronic condition. And every several months we go get MRIs. And, but her neuro-oncologist is amazing. And when we go see him, he is like, you know what? There's no changes. So we're not, you know, do no harm. I'm not, let's just leave it the way it is. And we, you know, thank, thank God for really good doctors. I don't, you know, I know you feel this way too. It's like, we've all run into people who, who treat you the way you shouldn't be treated or don't get it right. But when you ultimately get the right person, you just, you fall in love with them, quite honestly. That's my experience. Yeah. And, uh, and you really appreciate the great practitioners, I guess, in anything, not just doctors. But. Right. And it is, you know, my diagnosing um, neurologist was did not listen to me and did not understand or view me as uh, an individual person with a full history and a full life and um, you know, recognizing that this diagnosis was going to affect every single aspect of my life. I mean, I didn't know how I, I hadn't met my wife at that point. I didn't know how I was going to date and talk to newly prospective romantic interests about the fact that I have this chronic incurable disease that is going to slowly, you know, throw me into potentially having to use a wheelchair. I mean, for people so, who don't know what Erin looks like, she's a very attractive <laughs> woman who's, um, I don't want to say tiny, uh, but, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, but you're, you are a fun person too. And it's always fun to hang out with you, whether or not uh, someone's a romantic interest. So I, I think that you're always going to be that person. I admire that about you. Uh, but yeah, I could get why you'd have that concern because also dating was a big part of your life. And yeah, you know, I mean, right. Relationships in general, I think, um, you know, I, I do have my introvert tendencies and need my sort of alone time, though all of us have had a, probably an exorbitant amount of that at this point <laughs> with quarantine. Um, but relationships to me are very important and understanding people and interacting with people and connecting, um, in an authentic way drive me. Um, and so, you know, the day that I met my wife, we met at the women's March in 2017 and, um, I, that was the first day I used a cane and there was no hiding the fact that I had multiple sclerosis. There was no getting around, um, you know, 
hey, this is this is a reality that I'm living. And she saw that you were cute with a cane. <laughs> she thought I was a badass, you know, at that point. I mean, I was wearing my you leather, a, you know. You are a badass. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, I'm not yeah. going to be, I'm not going to put you in a box. I know that there are, right. in the, in various gay and lesbian communities, there are ways of classifying people, you know, bears, twinks, softfoot, you know, sure. all that stuff. And I, look, I don't want to do that. But I will say, if you put on a leather jacket and you're walking, you're a part of a woman's march, you're going to be noticeable. And clearly, <laughs> it worked for you. Yeah, it did. It worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Happy. and and it was yeah, happily so. And um, but I mean, I think you know, and it's it's a part of our reality. Um, it's it is um, it's a disease that I have, but it's not who I am. At the same time, it does color really or in, impact every aspect of my existence uh, at this point in good and, and bad ways. Um, and the good ways, you know, you have to hold both. It's life. Um, and the, the good ways, I mean, narrative medicine and pursuing healthcare justice and being involved with, you know, voter rights and disability voting rights. Um, I actually, after we're, we're done with this, I have a training with an organization, um, you know, that, um, is the, we, we are focused on, uh, well, it's the, um, American Association of P People with Disabilities, and they have, um, a, sort of a sub- uh, I guess organization called Rev Up, and it focuses on disability voting rights, um, and that intersects with a lot of other types of voter suppression and things like that. And it's about making sure that disability rights are for in the forefront and on the ballot, um, and that local, state, and federal representatives um, are educated and fighting for those, those rights. Um, and that is not something I would have been involved with really, um, unless I had an exposure to the ADA and understanding how my disability and status as a disabled person impacts um, other people as well. And I think that you know, having a chronic illness in terms of thinking about empathy, we've been talking about that with narrative medicine, um, you know, the deep listening and close reading of texts and creative outlets um, kind of led me to think about, so the, I, I'm in an online program, thankfully, through Columbia, and I do have um, I have accommodations, one of which is that I can take a course a semester and then the next semester take a medical leave. And during my medical leave, um, the last medical leave that I had, I started a literary magazine for people who are affected by chronic illness. So mental and physical chronic illness. So that can be people with, um, who actually have diagnosed or um, undiagnosed chronic issues um, or diseases, disorders, or it can be physicians, caretakers, um, you know, um, friends, family, all of that. 
And so what's I, the name of the magazine? For people it's listening? called ailments. Um, so people can actually find it at um, ailment, A I L M E N T coin, C O I N dot org ailment.coin.org. So it's ailment chronicles of illness narratives. Um, and it's really because the, the lives of the sick unfold in stories and it's, it's an, it's a platform and an outlet for people to, um, express their experiences. Um, and so each issue is a response to a creative prompt. The first issue was when I look in the mirror, I see that was a creative prompt. And then people responded to that, whether it was an essay or poetry or writing, drawing, painting. Um, and then they, those responses, I had over 400 submissions for the first issue. Um, and from all over the world, all different backgrounds. Um, I mean, we had a queer Iraqi poet. Um, we had, uh, um, you know, a, a man who was injured in war um, and was in a was in a wheelchair. Um, I read poetry from you know people from um, really every continent except Antarctica um, and all different kinds of chronic illnesses. So it was very humbling and and interesting, and um, it was. It's, it's really another sort of, I think creativity heals. And this is one of the, one of the ways that I wanted to be able to elevate voices of chronic, the chronically ill and of people who are affected by it. We are, we are out of time, unfortunately, but sure, no I love, I love that magazine. I just, um, we can people keep should going. look, it's oh, <laughs> I know. I, I, we, we definitely can, but yeah. Um, no, I'm a, I mean, I, I, I need to wrap up, but I really want to let people know that that online magazine is worth their time. I just, uh, I love the hexagon and people can look and see what I mean by that. And Thank uh, you. I, Aaron, I am uh, so grateful that you took time to talk to me today. And I'm grateful that you're the kind of person who uh, continues to grow and continues to look for ways to contribute and I'm excited about what's next. And uh, I hope that not only will listeners check out what you've had, but it, that you'll uh, be an inspiration for them to make some decisions and move forward. So thanks, Aaron. It's lovely to talk to Thank you. Thank you, Eric. I very much, I very much appreciate, appreciate the time. And it's always, it's always wonderful talking with you. Um, and yeah, it's really, it was, it's very interesting to see all of the different ways that our lives intersect with the law um, and how those laws impact us on a daily basis. And um, this is why it's very important to vote and have representatives in um, positions of power who are going to truly be working for the people that they were voted and, and elected to represent. And um, I really appreciate what you're doing to elevate the understanding of how the law intersects with all of our lives. And I appreciate the time to talk with you today. Thank you. Have a, Thanks, have a great one. Yeah, you too. All right. Take care. You too.
Well, that's my interview with Aaron Betag. Um, make sure you check out Ailment. That's at ailmentcoin.org. Uh, Chronicles of Illness Narratives. It's a really cool online magazine. Uh, you'll get a chance to meet Aaron Captain Daytalk through the site and um, make sure that you also get a chance to meet Abe's Muffins in person. Uh, they're tasty. Just like the uh, literary works you're going to find are tasty, <laughs> the muffins are tasty too. And thanks so much for, uh, for tuning into this podcast again. If you want more information, you want to give me feedback, you want to talk, see a new guest, um, any of that stuff, just contact us at isthatreallylegal.com. Reach out to us on Twitter. Be safe. Have a great one. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we'll see you next week.